Cool. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 again today. We're going to finish out the chapter. Um, I had hoped we'd get into chapter 3, but I don't think we're going to get that far today. And our study in Acts has been called the church on earth, obviously because it's about the church on earth. It's not about the church anywhere else because that's where we are. We're the church and we're on earth. <laughs> and that's pretty obvious, I think, hopefully. I don't want to be the church on earth for too much longer, but as long as we're here, that's what we're doing. Let's see if we can get this open for some more light. But today we're going to be in uh, verse 40, and we're probably only going to get through seven verses um, and the title of today's message is called They Continued Steadfastly. Uh, if we remember, uh, Acts means in the Greek it's praxeus and it means the great acts or the great works. You know, normally, like we talked about, it's about kings. In the Old Testament, say the acts of King Hezekiah or King Saul or King David. And God has called us kings and priests. He's made us kings and priests by his son Jesus. We know um, uh, we're not righteous in our own sense we're righteous like the song said because we've got the robes of christ on that christ has made us righteous and and because of that when we go out and we do stuff because god has called us to do these things they are great and marvelous acts because they're not acts that we're doing in ourselves they're not things that we've mustered up on our own i mean sometimes they may be and they're people might think they're great but in in the long grand scheme of things they're not that great when we get to heaven you know the they'll be burned up and and away and we'll say hey i did all this and god's gonna go well maybe it wasn't really for me but when we do things led by the Spirit and by God's Spirit and His instruction, they are great acts. And miracles happen and people get saved. And when we continue through acts and see through what's going to go on, what's going to go on here, we see that these things continue today. That people are still getting saved today. That the reason why we're all believers is because someone was a believer before us and someone was a believer before them. And so on and so forth, all the way back to this time in Acts. And, and yeah, we see God doing miracles in the Middle East where he's showing up to people in dreams. And, and of course, that, you know, God's going to do things despite us. But if we follow him and we serve him and, and we're just obedient in the simple things, there's going to be great acts. Great acts are accomplished. Uh, but this book uh, was written in AD 63. It's really a continuation of, of the book of Luke by Luke. Um, and it mainly covers the great acts of guys like Peter and Paul. Other guys are thrown in there, but it's really kind of divided up into two sections covering the lives of these two men of God. Last week, we looked at the prophecies of David and Psalms. They talked about the Messiah coming, the Lord said to my Lord, and how he knew that the Messiah was coming and would sit on his throne, and uh, how God made those promises to him, and that this was a testimony, a prophecy of the Messiah and the cross to come. And we also saw the promise of the cross, that the cross was not just to the Jews, it was to the Gentiles, it was to everybody, and that anyone could be saved. And that, that was the miracle, that Jesus died, he fulfilled the law and rose again. And because of that, it's easy to be saved. Just have to believe. And we also saw from Peter's uh, message, the beginning of his message and the continuation of it was the right reaction to that, repentance. Mm-hmm. And that repentance is when you hear the gospel and you hear the truth and God's word cuts you to the heart like we saw, that you're going to repent. You're going to say, I'm wrong. God, you're right. Which way do I go now? Which way do I go now? But this week, we're going to look at how the church grows. And probably next week, we'll look at a lame man who is healed. Um, But two questions to start off today. What do you think of church? And what do you think of miracles? I ask myself those things, too, because I think we can get in our minds idea of what a miracle is idea of what church is, maybe we've grown up in church or been a part of church for a while or burned by church or whatever it is, or maybe we've heard miracles and maybe it's kind of a scary word these days because there's so many people on TV claiming to perform miracles and they're not. Um, But I think that God would have us have a right understanding of both and have an understanding that we can be um, a part of both of those things in a healthy and balanced way. Uh, But Father, please bless our time, we pray, and please do teach us in your word. We pray, God, that you would do miracles in us and through us, and that, God, you would help us to do the acts that you've uh, laid before us, God, in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read uh, 40 through 43. And many other words he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, in fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. And we'll stop there for right now. You know, last week, Peter's message of promise and prophesied salvation. 
uh, when he quoted King David. And King David was someone that they were all familiar with, but we dug in a little bit deeper just to you know, kind of get a better picture of who David was and, and these words that were coming from him and from God. But it said that the people were cut to the heart, that this message that he gave about salvation, that who, who God was talking about, who Jesus was being the fulfillment of the Messiah, but also what they did to Jesus, that these were the people who killed Jesus, that they put him on the cross, whether at that thing when they said crucify him, crucify him, give us Barabbas, or just by their sin, but that the story didn't end there, that like we talked about, that God continued the story and said, yeah, you did this, but God raised him from the dead. And these simple words, it says that it cut them to the heart, that this message cut them to the heart, and that's what led them to be repentant. It wasn't a grand theological argument, but it was the truth. This is what God says. This is who Jesus is, and this is what you've done. But don't worry that that's not the end of the story, that God is the end of the story. And it says here that he gave them many other words, with many other words, and he testified and exhorted them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. That deep teaching, I think, is good, that we can get into deep theological arguments, we can get into exegesis and we can get into apologetics and get into the Greek and the Hebrew and figure out exactly what the Bible is saying and I think these things are healthy these things are good and these things we'll see are part of maturity but really the core of any message has got to be the cross whether you say it in and out but that the fact is that if it's not bringing us to the cross it's not bringing us to Jesus it's not pointing us to God and who he is and, and what what he's about I think we're really missing the point you know, you don't need to give a theological essay. You just need to give Jesus. We just need to, to talk about him, you know. Uh, it says that when they heard these guys speak at times, they realized that these weren't very educated people. You know, they didn't go to seminary. You know, they went, and they went out fishing, and, and then they came back, and Jesus told them to wait in Jerusalem, and then the Holy Spirit came upon them, and then what happened? Well, see here, thousands of people got saved. They didn't, you know, not that there's anything wrong with seminary per se, not that there's anything wrong with Bible college or knowing all these things, but I think that we've really lost the focus in Christianity and said that these are the things where the power comes from. Mm -hmm. These are the things where the acts of God really take place is you have to have a degree on the wall. Not so, not so, says God. You know, I think that that uh, brings up a point of the difference between milk and meat. Milk and meat. Where Hebrews 5, 12 through 14, this is sort of a, uh, you know, if you believe Paul wrote it, uh, a jab by Paul telling them to really get their act together. He says, for though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. He's saying that, hey, you guys have been walking with the Lord so long, you guys should be teachers by now. But he's saying you're missing the point. You're missing the point. You need to go back to the beginning. You need to go back and, and drink the, the milk of the word. And we'll get into that in a minute. First Peter 2, 1 through 3 says, Therefore, laying aside all malice, all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and evil speaking, as newborn babes desire the pure milk of the word, that you may grow thereby, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. You know, again, he says, you've got to put off all this evil stuff and enjoy the milk. Let the milk come in eat it and grow by it and you know we need milk as babies my son jacob he's eight months old still doesn't have any teeth he still drinks milk he still eats you know a liquid lunch you know he'll have bible uh not bible <laughs> he'll have like pears or apples that are all uh, blended up and mushed up and they're pretty gross and yet he seems to like them and wants to eat and eat and eat you know he has no teeth mia has some teeth and at dinner night, uh, for a couple nights, actually, she kept saying, Jacob has teeth? Jacob? We say, no, he doesn't have teeth. No teeth? And she didn't quite get it. Like, well, you have teeth. You used to not have teeth. Now you can eat food because you're a big girl and you can eat lunch, you know. But I still have to cut up her food. There's times when she'll take a big bite in her mouth and we have to remind her, chew, chew, chew. Or I'll say, spit that out and, you know, cut it up for her. But I, I don't need anyone to cut my food. You know, there was a joke my wife and I where her dad would cut up her food when she was older because he wanted to. And so we always kind of joke about that. But she doesn't need me to cut her food. I don't need to cut anyone else to cut my food. I cut it myself. I enjoy a good steak. I'll dig into that steak. 
But Jacob, no way. If he tried to eat that steak, you know, we'd go to jail for <laughs> hurting our kid. <laughs> you know, Mia would try to eat the steak, but she would probably choke on it because she doesn't know how to cut it up yet. And that's the same thing with us, with believers. If it's true in that physical sense, it's true in that spiritual sense. That there are things in the Bible that are milk. You know, you can read the New Testament as a new believer, and it's milk. You can read the New Testament as a seasoned believer, and it's meat. You can read the Old Testament as a kid in Sunday school, and it's milk. Oh, there's Abraham, and he had many sons, and I am one of them, and so are you, and it's very milky. We have a lot of stories, like with Veggie Tales and with the kids' Bible that tell the Bible stories in a way that's very milky that the kids can understand. But I'm not going to go watch Veggie Tales if I want to watch a Bible study. God will use that with me when I'm watching it with my kids, and I'll go, oh, yeah, you know, I'll get convicted about something or encouraged by something, and I'll be excited to see her learning it. When I go to read the Bible and study the Bible, I want to make sure that I'm getting the actual Bible. I want to make sure that I'm getting a, a, a deeper teaching because I need it as an adult. You know, maybe I need to lose some weight. I could probably go on a liquid diet for a while. It would help me out physically. But in the long run, I need meat. I need a well-balanced diet. And with believers, we need the same thing. If, if we've been a believer for a long period of time and we're still just reading our daily bread two seconds a day and, and that's it we're not actually reading the bible or listening to a bible study or in the word daily there could be a problem there could be a problem yeah there's you know there's no legal law says you must read this amount of time every day you got to read this translation etc etc but if we look at our lives and we see is there any maturity happening well i think it's directly tied in with are we eating food are we eating mature food you know if jacob were to be 30 one day and still drinking milk and not have a job and living here, I would say, what's the problem? Unless he was mentally handicapped or had some problem or maybe lost his job or something else happened, and of course I'm gonna take care of him. But if he's 30 and living here, there's, there's probably a, a deeper issue there. My daughter, she could be 60 and live with me and I don't care. <laughs> Jacob, 18, get a job, buddy. You know, you should have had a job. I had a job at 14, you need a job, <laughs> you know. But with spiritual maturity, we see that. We see people who are newborn babes, and they desire the pure milk of God. They go, I don't know what it means, but I want to hear the Bible. And it's fantastic. And they're reading it. Maybe they read a simpler transla translation. And that's perfect. And that's good. And that's healthy. But if you've been a Christian 10, 20, 30 years, and I haven't gotten that far yet, and you're still just barely, you know, you don't understand the deeper things of God, there's probably an issue there. It's not a condemnation. It's a sort of kick of the pants. Let's get, let's get going here. Let's understand these things. Because we need to mature, we need to grow up. That's, that's healthiness. It's not healthy to not grow up. You know, there's, there's sermonettes for Christianettes, it's been said. Mm -hmm. You know, that there's some churches out there who they give a 10-minute message and it's very fluffy and there's no conviction. There's no real ex expounding on the Word of God. And you see people's lives and, yeah, they, they know God, but is there a depth there? When the hard times come, do they go somewhere else? Are they still mixing with the world and... And their lives really aren't sorted out. And, and I just wonder what's going on there. You know, I'm glad that they're hearing the word. I'm glad that they're going to church. But I think that at some point we need to, to get something deeper. And I know that God's going to work that in each of our lives. That if we were in a situation like that, at some point God would begin to call us out. But really, what's his message here? What's Peter's message? He says, be saved from this perverse generation. Brings this whole message. They get convicted. What do we do? Be saved from this perverse generation. Generation. That word perverse is scolios in the Greek uh, because I have computer skills and I can click a button. I know that that's it. I'm not Greek by any chance of <laughs> imagination. But the word scolios, you guys remember in, in elementary school, maybe you had the scoliosis test where you'd bend over and the nurse would check your back, see if your back was messed up. Maybe some of us have had it. But it means crooked or curved. Uh, it was also a metaphor for perverse or wickedness, unfair. And this generation, man, is it perverse or what? I'm going to read a couple of verses, and uh, we'll talk about it. Proverbs 30, 11 through 14. There is a generation that curses its father, happy Father's Day, and does not bless its mother. There is a generation that is pure in its own eyes, yet is not washed from its filthiness. There is a generation, oh, how lofty are their eyes, and their eyelids are lifted up. There is a generation whose teeth are like swords, and whose fangs are like knives, to devour the poor from off the earth, and the needy from among men. Look at this generation we have today. There's a big disdain against fathers, and part of it, I think, is justified that fathers have really checked out over the past half century and left their kids and left them abandoned in one way or another, and part of that's justified. But I think, on the other hand, there's just, just this rebellion against authority, against father figures. 
there's a lot of sarcasm in these day and age and believe me my teeth have gotten very sharp in sarcasm growing up but Deuteronomy 32 20 says uh, and this is God responding to Israel's idolatry he says I will hide my face from them I will see what their end will be for they are a perverse generation children in whom is no faith that this verse begins to really kind of delve into a little bit more and say hey okay they're perverse but what maybe is the root cause of that perverseness and God says there's no faith in them that these children have no faith in the God who saved them in Matthew 7 14 through 21 and when they had come to the multitude a man came to him kneeling down and saying Lord have mercy on my son for he is an epileptic and suffers severely for he often falls into the fire and often into the water so I brought him to your disciples but they cannot cure him then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the child was cured that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. For assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, Move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. And there's a lot there that we're not going to get into, but there's something important, I think, that he says that, uh, you know, that, uh, where is it? Oh, faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? That the issue is that they didn't have the faith. Not that faith was magnanimous, but they didn't realize that we need to apply faith to the spiritual situation. We need to seek God, we need to pray, we need to fast before we see these results happen before us. They just went up and said, hey, we know Jesus. We can get this demon to be exercised. And that really wasn't the end of it. That, that doing things in the physical realm wasn't enough to handle this spiritual situation. And that's, you know, I think our lives, that a lot of times we go about trying to fix spiritual problems in our lives by doing physical things. And sometimes that's accurate. Let's read the Bible. Let's go to church, these practical things. But other times there's issues going on in our lives and our families, and we need to pray. We maybe even need to fast. Uh, you know, we may need to do hard things spiritually to get tiny little practical things worked out. One more verse, Philippians 2, 14 through 16. Do all things without complaining and disputing, that you become, become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast the word of life, so that I may rejoice in the day of Christ, that I, may, that I have not run in vain or labored in vain, that we need to do all things without complaining and disputing. That there's this other blockade, there's this other entrance, this other sign of being perverse, and that's complaining and disputing. And look at this world, it's all complaining. I may even be complaining right now by saying, look at this world, how, you know, how it is. How much dispute, how many disputes there are. At work, I love my coworkers, but it's like complaining all day and I fall into it and that's just how it is and a lot of it's kind of underhanded sarcasm and it's kind of fun sometimes but I think some of it may be harmless but other times there's a lot of real complaining that goes on around us um, just in general and, and do we get dragged into it because when we get dragged into it there goes our witness if we're complaining about something well why are we complaining if, if we know God and God provides all our needs why am I griping to my coworkers who don't know God that I don't have any money or that my marriage is messed up or all these other things that you know, may or may not be the right situation to complain to. I need to complain up. I need to gripe up to God. I'm going to complain to God if I have complaints, and he's going to remind me I have nothing to complain about. But I think that there's this distinct correlation between faith and not being perverse, and on the flip side of a lack of faith and being perverse. And we're going to start that physical perversity starts with spiritual perversity that there's sin in the heart. Jesus said, hey, you guys have committed adultery if you've done it in your heart, if you looked with a woman with lust in your heart, or you'd have coveted these things, that there's this internal effect that ends up being external. And that's very obvious this day and age that this generation is perverse in every way. We idolize people. We call people heroes who are very clearly perverse mm -hmm. in many ways. Mm -hmm. um, there's people who think they're one way, and proclaim to be another way, and you look at them and you go, this is obvious that you are not who you claim to be. But the world exalts that. But I think deeper than that, because it's always deeper than that, that perversity is really spiritual. Perversity is really not having faith in God. The deepest perversity is that God is God in heaven, 
and we need to have faith in him. We need to trust in him. I mean, that was the sin of Satan, was believing that he could take over God's realm. And the perversity in this generation is really the heart of it. They would rather worship a dead idol than the living God, than the living God. And that happens in all of us. When, when we begin to get perverse in our ways or our thinking, it's because I think we've, we've turned our faith from God and begun to say, I need to meet my own needs in some way that God has not prescribed. But verse 41 says that then those who gladly received his word were baptized. So there were some there who, who obviously were mocking them at one point we read uh, recently. But there were others there who gladly received his word. That they said, yes, this is true. This is right. This is what's been bugging me all these years. This is the deep things that uh, this is true. And I know what it is. I need to go a different way. And it says that they were baptized. That they had this joy. And they were so joyous they were willing to get baptized. And, and what is baptism? I'm sure we all know what it is here, but just uh, to gloss over it, I'm going to read Romans 6. Um, and it says, What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or do you not know that as many of us were baptized into Christ Jesus, were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we've been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him, for the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That that's baptism. That the way you identify with Christ on the cross is not like those people do in certain countries where they crucify themselves every year to be identified with Jesus, but that we simply are baptized. That we go under the water to symbolize our death to our old man, our old self, and that when we come out from under the water, we are a new life. We are resurrected from the, the body and the life of sin. And we are no longer slaves to it because we died to it. That the person who used to be a drug addict, the person who was a womanizer, a thief, uh, extortioner, uh, a blasphemer, an idolater, whatever, died in that pool. Or died on the other side of that baptismal. Or maybe it was only a bucket of water. Died on the dry side of that bucket of water. Whatever it was that you were dead on that other side and that when you come to it's the sealing of your conscience saying yep there's a moment in time when I died with Christ and now I identify with him publicly as a new person as a new believer and that's important it's important to be baptized it's not essential to salvation as I'm sure we all believe in here but it's very important that if we have the opportunity to be baptized we're not on the cross next to Jesus dying that we need to go and get baptized we need to go like there's people who have said to me well what about getting married uh, as a Christian, you know, do I, I can just be married in God's eyes, right? No, you need to go get married before the state because God says we need to obey the government and we've been given this opportunity to, so we need to do things in the right way. The same way with baptism. We should be baptized. We need to seal our relationship with the Lord, so to speak, and make a public proclamation of it because if you believe it, you're going to want to get wed. And if you don't believe it, you're probably going to go, oh, that's kind of crazy. I don't really want to do that. But it is crazy, and it's, it's worth it. But can you imagine 3,000 souls being saved? Imagine we're here, and people outside can hear, and 3,000 people bum rush us and say, how do we know Jesus? And we're all out there for hours ministering to all of them, and they come to know Jesus, and then we kind of take over the pool and baptize them there, and they go, well, you don't have guest passes. And I go, too bad. <laughs> can you imagine? I don't think we can. I think we, we, we kind of think we can and kind of hope for it and kind of know that it's a reality. But in reality, we go, ah, that's not really possible. I'm just going to stay home today. I think it's possible. And that's a miracle. It's a miracle. That doesn't happen every day. You know, we talk about these revivals of old. And I think in some sense, God doesn't care about the revival of old. If it's a revival of old, it's over. God cares about the revival of today. You know, maybe we can learn something from these old revivals and see something. But if there's not a revival taking place in our hearts, if we're not seeking a revival today, looking back at some other revival is not going to matter. You know, obviously we need to look back at the revival in Acts. I mean, that's obviously what's happening here. It's the vival, because it didn't happen previously to be revived. It was viving here. But can you imagine 3,000 people getting saved? You know, 
I think Billy Graham can imagine that. But I think that's because God gave him those visions, and I'm sure God's given us similar visions, and I'm sure that God could do that in this perverse day and age. I think this generation has gotten so perverse that they're going to hate the gospel, like we've seen here, where they mock them and say, you guys are drunk, or they're going to gladly receive it. And, and we need to pray and hope that, that God would do that in our day and age. But again, it says here 3,000 souls. Yeah, yeah, 3,000 is a huge number, but the point here is that it's souls. He didn't say souls of the feet. He means souls. God cares about the people's souls. He doesn't care about the numbers. You know, in the Old Testament, they weren't allowed to, to number the people. And when David did, a scourge went through the land, and David had to repent of it. You know, God is more concerned about the individual than he is the number. And I think in our day and age, again, in our perverse generation, it's even crept into the church where it's not important unless a lot of people show up. It's not important unless God is doing something with a lot of people. And I, maybe that's not the case. Maybe the mega church is a good church and God's doing stuff there. Or maybe this mega church is a den of thieves and people aren't getting fed the word. And maybe it's just a, a big old bust to hell. I don't know. But the point is, is that the numbers don't matter. We, numbers are good and they can be a good sign of fruit. But really, are we caring about the numbers or are we caring about the people? I've heard it said around different conferences and different things, and not this past year, but other places maybe, how big is your church? How many people go to it? And not really said to me, he said to other people, but really, I think the right answer, I've heard it said before, is all of them. <laughs> you know, not all oh, my church has got 200 people, and my church has got 400 people, and my church has 20,000 people. Well, why do you have 20,000 people? Is that really important? You know, is it more important to have 20,000 people in the fellowship or two that know Jesus and love him and serve him and know him deeply? When I get to heaven, if we never have another church service here again and you guys all know God and got something out of, hopefully, out of some of these messages, fantastic. If we grow to be 100,000 people and the whole Montgomery County comes to know Jesus in some way, but they get there and they're all immature, well, yeah, I don't know. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. Because, yeah, I want a lot of people to be saved, but it's a tough one. You know, disciples, not pew warmers. Milk versus meat again. Do you want a bunch of babies running around? Yeah, it's good to have a bunch of babies and going to the hospital and seeing all the babies through the glass is a great thing. But if that's where they stay for their whole lives, that's, that's we've probably missed the boat on something. But verse 42 says, They continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and breaking in bread and in prayers. And that steadfastly, that word again, I clicked the button, uh, proskritereo, I can't even say it right, but it means to adhere, to be adherent, to be devoted or constant to one, steadfastly attentive to. It's interesting, we're going to see attentive to again in chapter 3 uh, when the Peter uh, ministers to the lame man. But it says that they continue all the time in a place, they persevere not to faint, they show oneself courageous, but they're also in constant readiness, that we must continue steadfastly, that there's this, an action to being a believer, a conscious effort. And I think that conscious effort is driven by love and devotion, that we need to continue steadfastly, that church isn't just going to happen unless we get up and we get together, that church isn't going to continue to happen unless we continue to get up and get together, whether that's on a Sunday morning, a Thursday evening, a Monday afternoon, whatever the case may be, if we don't steadfastly stick together, it's not going to happen. You know, why, why would it? The world's not going to do it. So if we're not being the church and doing the church, it's not going to happen. But I think on the other side that it's important that we do that because, again, we're in a perverse generation. If we're not swimming upstream, so to speak, steadfastly, we're going to get turned around real quickly, real quickly. Um, not to toot my own horn or anything, but I was thinking last night, like, part of it was, man, I just, I don't even really want to get up tomorrow, et cetera, just pity party on myself. Uh, and thinking, well, how many times do I really miss church? Well, it was my honeymoon, and it was a mission trip, and it was this other thing, and I was sick once, and I really haven't missed church that many times. And I think, wow, that's great. You know, if, if I start skipping out, things would probably get bad real quick. Uh, I've heard a pastor say that God made him a pastor because <laughs> otherwise he wouldn't be going to church every week. <laughs> that he'd probably be in a lot of trouble. You know, that he's got to keep the troublemakers close. And I think that that's the case for some of us. <laughs> but maybe this is more just me, but de my devotion can waver from weariness. But we must press on to survive. You know, if we're in the wilderness, 
and we're running out of water and food, if we want to make it out, we've got to keep pushing on whether we're tired or not. Galatians 6, 9, and 10 says, And let, let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we shall reap if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all, especially to those who are the household of faith, that, man, it's going to get hard doing good sometimes, but that there's a promise to that, that if we keep pushing on, we keep persevering, we keep steadfastly continuing in faith and in church, there's going to be a reward. People are going to get saved. Fruit is going to come out of other people's lives. But that we also need to do to the household of faith, that, that importantly, we need to be good to other believers in the church, and we need to take care of the church. But Hebrews 10, 23-25 says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some, but exhorting one another in so much the more as you see the day approaching. A lot of people will say, I don't have to go to church. I can just watch it on TV. I can just send a message, go about my business. Maybe once in a while, maybe, but the Bible is very clear that we're not to forsake the gathering together of the brethren. Well, the church is full of hypocrites. <laughs> well, you're even bigger hypocrite because you say you're a Christian and you don't want to obey what the Bible says. Um, there's this pastor on the radio I listened to on the way to work, and I love at the end of his message, especially on Fridays, it says, uh, encourages everyone to go fellowship with their church family and then come back on Monday and listen to the next message. And that's so important that, yeah, it's good to have other teachers. It's good to listen to these other things, but we need a home church. We need to be around other believers. There's something even about being in an overflow room. I remember in New York, we had the cafe off the sanctuary and you'd be in the sanctuary listening to a message and it was good. And you go in the cafe and it's just something a little bit different. Yeah, it was still, you're right there and you're watching on TV. But there's just something different about being in the room with believers when the message is, is being given. But then also that fellowship, that the message is only one part of the church, you know, quote-unquote experience. There's worship. But then there's the fellowship before and after where we pray for each other or we just share our lives and say, hey, I'm going through this. Or we just laugh and have a good time. You know, that we need to be around other believers. But I like what, uh, you know, if you believe Paul wrote Hebrews, what Paul says here, so much more as you see the day approaching, that the day of Jesus' return is soon and it's ever sooner every day you know we're several thousand years from this time and it's getting close especially with how perverse the generation is getting that you know we're supposed to be salt and light and the salt is not doing much anymore the meat is so rotten that salt's barely doing anything anymore but that we must continue in what well he lists several things here the apostles doctrine fellowship breaking of bread and prayers and I believe that this is God's prescription for how the church should be built and how the church should look. There's a lot of other things that can come out of these things and different styles and different ways of doing things. But these are the four core things of the church. Apostles' doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, and prayers. And I believe worship kind of fits in with that prayer aspect. But apostles' doctrine, you know, what were the apostles teaching? Well, it's pretty obvious for us. It's the New Testament. It's the Gospels. That's what the apostles taught. That's what they wrote. That's what was taught in the early church and continued. But even then, a lot of times, they were just expounding on what the Old Testament had to say. They're saying, this is what the Old Testament said, but Jesus fulfilled it, so this is how we live it in new life, not under the law anymore. So it's important that the church is in the Bible. You know, I think topical messages are good. I'm not one for topical messages. It's easier for me to go through the Word. I know I'm not missing anything. I'm not sticking on pet doctrines as easily. But really, if the church is not in the Bible every week, there's an issue. If the church just holds up their Bible before service and then the pastor gives a message and there's barely any verses given, I think there's an issue because we need to know what the Bible says. If you're not hearing about the Bible at church, where are you going to hear it? Maybe you'll read it at home, but maybe you won't be assured that what you're understanding is right. You know, a lot of times in my devotional time, God will speak to me about something or I'll be learning something or going through something and then I'll listen to a message or I'll go to a church service and God will confirm those things to me and say, yep, yep, that's what I was saying. Nope, you were totally wrong about that or whatever it is. You know, but that's how God works. That, yeah, this can be primary for new believers, but as we grow, this church should really be secondary and it really needs to be the word of God because if it's important enough for our personal life, how much more important is it for our uh, church life? But also fellowship. Again, these things we have to do steadfastly. We have to continue in them, whether we want to or not sometimes. That fellowship was hanging out with other believers. 
But it's deeper than that. It's really sharing life, being open with, like we talked about, struggles, joys, prayer requests, accountability. You can't have accountability when you're watching Dr. Stanley every week on the TV and you never go to church. He's great. I still listen to him. I still listen to him. But that's not church. That's listening to a pastor give a message. And it's a good message, but it's not fellowship. You know, there's no one there to keep you accountable. Um, and that's where we get true friendship. That's where you get true, true, true friendship is in church. People will tell you, hey, you got something hanging off you. Hey, you got something in your teeth. Hey, you got something going on spiritually that there needs to be dealt with here. Hey, let me hug you. I know you're going through a hard time. Let me help you through this. That You're going to get that real friendship, hopefully, in church. And if you're not, you're either not hanging out long enough or, like the Bible says, maybe, you know, one who wants to, be, wants to have friends needs to be friendly. But, you know, this is not what we should have in the world. We can have friends in the world. I have friends at work, and I'm, I'm really enjoying making new friends. But I'm not going to share with them my deepest struggles. I may let them know what's going on in my life from time to time to be open and real with them. But I'm not going to come to them for advice spiritually. You know, if I know someone at work is Buddhist, I'm not going to go ask them, what should I pray about? <laughs> How would you approach this spiritually? No, because that's not the fellowship we're supposed to have. You know, Ephesians 5.11 says, and have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather expose them. Now, as believers, we can be friends with the world in a sense, but we're not going to have that same fellowship with them. Instead, our lives should be exposing the darkness in and around them that they might come to the truth. And that may take a while. That may take a while. You know, our deep struggles, our need for spiritual and life advice should come from believers. Not Oprah, not Dr. Phil, not our unsafe friends, but from Jesus the Bible, and believers. And where do we get that? In fellowship. In fellowship. And they say also breaking of bread. I love this. That it's just as simple as eating together. You know, we went out last week uh, to Panera Bread, and that was great. I, I'm really glad we went out to do that um, because it's important. It's important just to hang out and eat with each other and have fun and get a meal and feel bloated and go home and <laughs> take a nap. It's important. And that's another great aspect of fellowship is sharing a meal with someone. It's intimate. I think we get to know each other a lot better over a meal. You know, maybe when you were dating, you went out and got a meal with the person. You know, my wife and I are going to go out uh, next week when uh, our in-laws come to visit, and we're going to go out and get dinner and probably go see a movie and, and have that intimate time. You know, dinner time. I love having dinner at our tiny little dinner table because it's the time to catch up and see each other and eat and just be a family. But deeper than that, spiritually, because we do have a deeper connection as believers, there's communion. And I was close to doing communion today, but I didn't want to do it too much recently. But really, we could do it every time if, if we could handle it. But really, communion, that we eat together. We eat the supper that the Lord gave us of his bread and of, of his body and of his blood. Because that's the deeper fellowship we have. That's the family connection that we have. That we come from maybe different backgrounds and different locations. But we're all friends because we're all believers and we all love Jesus. And that's the core thing that matters in our relationship with each other is our relationship with Jesus. You know, if you like to do something totally different than me, that's fine. But we love Jesus, and therefore we love each other. And I love that because the world is not like that. The world will be friends over what, the, in a way like that, you know, you like the Giants, I like the Giants. You like the Ravens, I like the Ravens. I hate you, you like the Steelers, you know. There's this camaraderie, but it's not that deep. It's very shallow. You know, I loved our church up in New York because it was so many different people from so many different walks of life. Young, old, rich, poor, black, white, yellow, Hispanic, whatever. All friends because that's what really matters we're all one people it, it doesn't have it doesn't have anything to do with that and the world is crying out for that unity but they can't get it that way but I like also that heaven is a wedding feast that if we go to heaven and it says that it's a wedding feast we should be feasting together now and enjoying that life together now because we have it and and if we study the old testament and the the sacrifice we see god was doing the same thing that there was a sacrifice i forget which one exactly but they would make a sacrifice and they would keep some of themselves and the point was that they were supposed to be eating and fellowshipping with god and the fourth one prayers and i don't think these are necessarily in order of importance i think they're all just kind of listed there but prayers everything is accomplished through prayer everything spiritual is accomplished through prayer Nothing is going to happen if we don't pray. Nothing is going to happen. Things may happen, but it's, it's going to go in that same way of perverseness again. It's going to go a wrong direction, a wrong direction. But also that believers need to pray together. That part of them getting together was praying together. 
And I'd really like to see us pray together. Before we started meeting every week, we prayed together once in a while. You guys prayed together. You guys meet on different nights as well. But I'd like to start maybe in July. Maybe we can get together and figure out a day that works best for us all to get together. Maybe once a month. Maybe more than that if possible. But, I, you know, I don't want to be a burden to anyone. Um, but really, sit down and figure out. Maybe there's a day when we can get together and just pray together. Maybe for a half an hour. Maybe for an hour. Maybe for 10 minutes. I don't know. But I think that it's important. Because hearing someone else pray there's just something about it there's just something about it I, I can't really explain it other than it's it's healthy and it's good but this is church guys and I, I think we all know that this is church that these are the bases of the church if we go somewhere and they're not doing these things if they're just you know throwing chickens around the room and <laughs> handling snakes and anything that we go oh i don't know <laughs> But if, if the church is, is praying, it's worshiping, it's studying the Bible, it's fellowshipping, we see a good health there. Um, you know, so what does this look like? What do we think of when we think of church? Is it that? Is it a family? When we come to church, I hope that, you know, in some sense, I know we all are still just getting to know each other um, in one sense or another, but I hope that we feel like family in a sense. I know that I feel like you guys have been a real blessing to me and family to us. But I hope that you feel welcome here. I hope that when we go out, whether, you know, the more we get to know each other, that we feel welcome, that we feel like family, because we are. You know, the church isn't just bake sales. It's not just big concerts. It's not feel-good messages. Maybe those things are there sometimes, but that's not the core of it. And again, there's that saying of doctrine in one hand held tightly and methods in the other hand very openly, that we need to be very tight on these four things. We need to make sure we don't stray from these four things because it's very easy to, like we talked about in the perverse generation, but the way we do them might be different. Maybe we go to Chili's next time. You know, we don't always have to go to Panera. Maybe worship is with the tambourine. Maybe worship is with drums. Maybe worship is hymns. I don't know. That style to me is not important to me. It's not important to God. It's, it's the heart. It's when we begin to say it has to be done this way. It's when we get into trouble. But if what we want to do stems from these four things, then that's fantastic. If we want to get together and pray, that's fantastic. If we want to get together and fellowship, fantastic. Study the Bible, etc., etc. That's got to be the core of our activities as a church. But it's interesting here that it doesn't say evangelism. Does that mean that the church doesn't evangelize? No, I wouldn't say that. Of course not. You know, what is Peter doing here essentially? Evangelizing. But is that the core? Is that the core of what the church's responsibility is? No, I don't. I don't think it is. Um, it's not the primary role. I would say it's definitely a secondary role of the church, but it's every believer's lives and duties really to be uh, even a calling, maybe even to be an evangelist. But the church's role is to be a fellowship of believers, caring for other believers and equipping the saints to go out and do the work. And maybe the saints come together at church and as the church go out and evangelize, that's great. But if the church isn't eating together, praying together, studying the word together and fellowshipping together, well, there's no point in going out evangelizing because you're going to go out and no one's going to be friends. There's not going to be any love. There's not going to be any accountability. There's not going to be solid teaching and discipleship going on to bring these new believers back into. You, does that sort of make sense? I mean, maybe I'm wrong, but that's really kind of what I've seen and what I'm getting out of this. And, and we'll close up here in a minute. But the church needs to hold fast to these things. We need to hold fast to these things. You know, there were some issues that came out that were in the church that I was that I came out of, and God handled them after I left. And I remember struggling for a while: do I stay or do I go? But God just kept staying, stay, and I kept staying. You know, I knew that stuff was going on. I just prayed and let the Lord handle it. But you know, what was the major sign of deeper issues: the fellowship was broken. That people weren't hanging out as much. People weren't going over to houses for dinner as much. There were more rifts between people in the church until this issue. And the leadership was taken care of. And literally, as soon as that happened, as soon as we had, I went back up there and we had the meeting and discussed what happened, people were hanging out. People were going over to houses for dinner. People were bringing food to church. It was fantastic. I was like, I want that recipe. Do I have to go? <laughs> but really, because our church was very, very healthy fellowship, and then stuff happened, and the fellowship really dropped off, and then it came right back. And I think that, that that's a very good sign to, to look for. Do people at least want to hang out? But it says in verse 43 that fear came upon every soul and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. That doing these four things will bring the fear of God among people. Whether it's in the body, I'm not a believer and I come in and I start getting kind of curious or convicted by the word 
or by the love that people have for one another. And I go, oh, I've never seen people like this before. Or I've never heard the Bible like that before. And maybe my life does need to change. Maybe I do need to repent. Or maybe it's just people on the outside say, hey, look at that church. They're always getting along. I never hear of any problems coming from that church. <laughs> That's almost funny to say because, <laughs> you know, there's always drama. There's always drama. But really, if the church is doing what it's supposed to be doing, and not perfect by any stretch of the imagination, it never will be, God gets glorified in the church and out of the church. And because of that, people get saved and brought in the church. Whether it's one person in a decade, I don't know what the number is, but souls are going to get saved. I think the world kind of sees that today, and I think that's probably why the world doesn't like the church so much today. Not necessarily because of the message of the church, but because the church doesn't live out the message. Mm, come on now. Right? The people revere cults. People look at Mormonism and say, look at how great the Mormons are. Hello? <laughs> what? <laughs> what? Well, I think why? They're very family-oriented. They actually do care for each other and love for each other and go out and spread the false gospel. <laughs> but really, the church isn't doing those things. Yeah, their core is totally wrong, but I think they've got something else going on. And maybe the church doesn't have And I'm not saying that's us. I'm not saying the churches that we've been a part of, but I think as a body as a whole, at least in Western society. But that miracles were done through the apostles. And we'll see that in the next chapter, that this stuff is healthy and going on. These miracles are happening in the church. That's happening through the people. It's not some crying statue of Mary somewhere. It's happening through the people. And let's, let's go on and get these next few verses as we get out of here, if we can. 44. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common and sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily, verse 46, with one, one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. It says that they were all together in unity. They were in unity. And that's going to be evident that there's going to be unity. Yeah, maybe we won't agree on everything. Maybe we won't all be friends. I mean, that's really kind of impossible. Uh, when the church is larger, but that there's going to be unity there. That Yeah, we're all here for the same purpose. And I think it's interesting that they really believe that Jesus was coming back at any moment. They sold their stuff. They gave it to each other. You hear these guys who claim that Jesus comes back on a certain date and everyone sells all their stuff and Jesus doesn't come back and these people are left uh, up a creek because of a false teacher. But we need to take care of each other's needs. I'm not asking you to sell your car. <laughs> I'm not asking you to sell your house. I'm not asking, God's not asking me to do that either in a sense but when we have needs for each other whether it's physical whether it's spiritual we should be willing to take care of each other's needs uh, even at our own sacrifice sometimes you know first timothy 5 8 says but if anyone does not provide for his own and especially for those of his household he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever that if we're not taking care of our family there's a major issue but if we're not taking the church there's there's another issue there too you know we need to do good to other believers you know, that doesn't mean that we don't need to work and be responsible. Second Thessalonians talks about that we need to work. If, we're, if we want to eat, we got to work. And I like to eat, so I like to work. And this isn't socialism here. You know, if we read Proverbs 1, 8 through 19, it talks about basically, I think, in a sense, socialism, where everyone throws in one purse, but it's not in a godly way. It's not in a godly way. You know, God doesn't say that we all have to have one purse. God says don't steal. God says be a good steward. There's this idea of personal property and personal responsibility. But in the same sense, we don't need to have a hard grip on these things. If someone else we see in need needs something we have, we should probably give it to them or pray about how to help them out. And that doesn't mean that we enable them as the world does, because again, there's accountability. You know, someone would come into our church in New York and they ask for money, we'd meet with them and find out, you know, yeah, maybe we'll help out their immediate need, but if they need long-term help, we're gonna sit down and meet with them. You know, oh, well, maybe you need to get rid of that Lexus. <laughs> maybe you need to get rid of, you know, the iPhone and get the, the, the the dumb phone. I don't know. Maybe there's other steps you need to take, but there's got to be accountability. And I don't think the world offers that. And I think so often we, we expect the world to handle that. But it says that they went to temple. You know, they didn't have their own building yet, but they still were good witnesses to the other Jews around them. They knew they could still go to temple. Uh, they didn't do it forever. Obviously, the church started meeting on their own at some point. But they were good witnesses, just like Jesus was. And I think of people who maybe get saved out of a, a denomination church that maybe is dead, and they continue there for a season. And they know the Lord, and they continue there until God brings them out. But it says that they, they met together, and they ate together with uh, simplicity of heart. And how important is that? That a simple life is satisfying. Mm. 
The Bible talks about that a lot, that if we just seek to live a quiet life, working with our hands and being able to take care of other people's needs, then that's a satisfying life. And, th and that's really what this perverse generation is missing because they're not living by faith. They think I need to strive and make as much money as I can and do whatever I can to get the car. They lose their family. They lose their souls, Jesus had said. But that if we just simply get together, hang out, have fun, study the Bible, pray, do these things that are prescribed, God's going to do things. We don't need to muster it up. And the evidence is that is verse 47. The Lord added to the church daily those who are being saved. Those who are being saved. As we do these things, people are naturally going to get saved. Yeah, it's good to go out and do evangelism. I, I hope that we, uh, you know, down the line begin to do these things maybe later in the summer or in the fall, maybe even sooner. We get together after we pray and see what the Lord would have us do and that people get saved. And whether they become part of our fellowship or another fellowship in the area, but the Lord has to be the one to add them. We don't need an advertising campaign. Yeah, we have church cards that we can hand out if we invite someone to church, but we don't need to get an ad in the newspaper. We don't need to get an ad on a billboard per se. I mean, maybe that's one thing we'll do one day as the Lord leads for an outreach or something, but we don't need to promote ourselves. We don't need to do these things. God is going to do them. God is going to do them because it's his church. If we promote the Lord, if we lift him up, what happens? He draws all men unto himself. You know, the church isn't the destination, as I think it's become in America, but it's a pit stop. Heaven's the destination. We should come here, get refueled, get ready to go for the week, make some friends, and then go out and continue on towards heaven. So keep going, stay steadfast, and love one another. I think that's what we can get from what Peter is sharing here today and Luke uh, is writing. So, amen. Uh, Father, we thank you for your word and that it's true. And that, God, uh, you're the one who builds your church. And we pray that you would continue to build your church and bring your entire church into a right relationship with you, that we might uh, turn from our sin and our wicked ways and humble ourselves and seek your face. And that, God, you would heal this land. So, God, would you heal our land? Absolutely. Would you heal our families and our friends? Absolutely. Would you use us at work and in our community? Uh, and, Lord, but, Lord, would you bless our fellowship together, whether... Uh, we meet once a week, twice a week, seven times a week, whatever it is, Lord, I pray, God, that uh, it would be about you and we would continue in these things and that, God, you would add to your church um, as you would see fit. But, Lord, grow us, we pray. And bless our friends who are away this week and minister to them in Jesus' name. Amen. So God bless you guys.